You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Jose. I'm a freelance theater critic. And hi, I'm Alexi. I'm also a freelance theater critic here based in Philadelphia. And we are your theater friends. Alexi, thank you for joining uh, us for the first time. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Like, what do you do in Philly? And I don't know, Alexi, whatever you want to share with us. Absolutely. So basically, I am so excited to be here on this episode today. It's been such a wild ride kind of getting involved in theater criticism So I've always like engaged with theater as like an audience member and just with friends. But now like I'm trying to become um, more involved as a theater critic through the critics lab that you helped start. And I'm here in Philadelphia because this is where I went to college and I've moved here full time now. And so I've just been kind of riding out the pandemic from Philly. Almost every person that I know uh, from Philly, and I love Philly, by the way, every person that I know from Philly like brags so much about how great Philly theater is compared to New York, which I agree, New York can be trash and it can be very regional, but have you developed such strong feelings about Philly versus New York theater uh, as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's such a vibrant local theater scene here. And when I first got introduced to it, I felt... I don't know. I just felt like, why is nobody talking about this more? Um, there are like so many more like pay what you want theaters, which I think makes theater more accessible. And I've just had kind of like a great time experiencing it. And it's really sad to be in a city known for local theater um, during this time when things are shut down. You're telling me that? <laughs> uh, how many times have you done the Rocky thing of the, uh, what is it, the, uh, the, What's the museum called? Um, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, or I'm not sure yeah. where. Yeah. Yeah. You're oh not sure God. where the Rocky Steps are? Yes, the Rocky Steps. I feel yeah. so like I when I first visited Philly, I was a senior in high school, so that's the first time I did the Rocky Steps, and then I think I did it once freshman year <laughs> of college. I love that. And I'm very excited to have you on this episode because, in fact, we're going to be talking about the Wilma Theater production of Heroes of the Fourth Turning. And we are also going to be discussing the digital production of Inside the Wild Heart by group.br. But before we get into our review section, we are going to talk a little bit about 
something that's been on my mind lately with the presidential election that happened in November, and now we have President-elect Joe Biden coming in, is kind of like a huge policy gap. And I think like a lot of these presidential platforms in terms of creating like a comprehensive like policy to support the arts. And it's just been like on my mind recently, just because throughout this entire pandemic, I've been relying on the arts to kind of like get me through like this tough period and kind of make sense of the way the world is unfolding. So it's just kind of been shocking to me to see such little attention paid to the arts. So like I one show that's been on my mind recently um, has been undocumented by Jesus Baez. And it was put up in a local theater in San Antonio. So it hasn't gotten like too much coverage. But I think it's like such a perfect example of how theater can humanize an issue and tie it to policy. So basically it's a monologue and it talks about the challenges of a mixed status family where some siblings have citizenship uh, in the US and some siblings don't. And at the very end of the monologue, Jesus talks about like the different policies that set up immigrants to fail. So like they talk about, for example, oh, we all have rights to a lawyer, but what is the point of having a lawyer if the laws written were meant to keep out immigrants in the first place? So it's just been interesting to me to watch these shows that are so empowering and help kind of humanize a lot of issues going on in this country, but then to also see these shows not get the funding, attention they deserve, um, and being overlooked by social policy. And like, there has to be, there have been so many calls for a federal theater project. And I just think that's time for that. I think it's time to kind of put this at the forefront. Let me ask you something then. Like, was was this year that's like never ending, The maybe not the first time, but the time where you have felt that the most were like hard, uh, can address like something that urgent uh, in the way that this show does? Yeah, absolutely. I think that right now, so typically when I watch theater, I feel when it addresses an issue, it can maybe be like a longstanding issue or something that's not as present in the popular conversation. But I think with like the murder of George Floyd, everybody is now talking about like systemic inequality. They're now talking about all these social systems that have like created and perpetuated inequity and inequality. So now when you see theater tearing apart and dissecting these social systems, it's so much more urgent, so much more present. So there's this huge intersection happening right now. And it's really important because it's the way that we learn about these issues and we can maybe advocate against certain systems. So that's kind of been what's happening. Does it mean that it's maybe like tempting you to run for office at some point and get some artists in government? <laughs> I think that there should be more artists who turn politicians. Um, I remember, that I, so I follow Yale School of Drama on Instagram, and I forget what the name of the alum was, but there was an alum who got an MFA from Yale and then ran for local office. And I think that's exactly it, because artists have a way of understanding humans' lived experiences and the experiences of communities and find a way to portray it effectively to others, which is kind of what a politician should be able to do. I said, like, I've always found this like very interesting that the more it seems that we get into, uh, I don't know, like artists like seem to like prefer to be like completely like apolitical 
obviously for monetary reasons, right? Like no one wants to know that they're, you remember what happened when that um, Catherine McPhee uh, was like, you know, unveiled to be like a big, like, I don't say that man's name ever, so I won't say it, but she was unveiled <laughs> to be like one of his supporters and like people, you know, like started like going for her. Like, do you, do you think, I don't know, like, do you think that it's, uh, do you think that you can be, I don't even, I'm not even going to use the word conservative because I don't think those people are conservative. Do you think you can be a, openly supporting a racist and also be allowed to have a, a career in the arts? Well, I think I, in my opinion, I feel like when you support like a fascist and a racist, then hopefully you live in a world where you're kind of punished for supporting those types of views. Um, and I think art is all about having like a conversation, right? And I think that people need to be more, I think people need to be intentional and careful about the messages that their art advocates for. People sometimes underestimate the power that art can have in swaying people's political opinions. So in my opinion, anybody who's in the arts should be very intentional about understanding the implications of what they're supporting. Um, not to tie it, I mean, to tie it rather to like a mainstream kind of like topic um, and artist. I remember when there was controversy when Taylor Swift said you should go out and vote or when Taylor Swift was public about her political opinions. And that just shows you the power of artists to sway others, you know, um, and to mobilize people and communities towards certain political outcomes. So absolutely, oh, not yeah. the, yes, the full reminds cardigan. Me. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. You can't so, yeah. see this because you're only listening to us, but yes, I put on my folklore cardigan. But remember how, how interesting it was? Like, I, I, I mean, yes, like I'm like, you just like opened like Pinterest box by mentioning uh, T-Swift. <laughs> because remember how before she did that, everyone, and I mean, by everyone, I mean like people like liberals mostly and you know, people who are not uh, fascists had decided that she was like the symbol of like Aryan, like, you know, perfection. They had decided that she was like the ultimate, you know, like Republican supporter. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that was a definite. Well, I think also because of like her Southern roots as well. And she was being kind of like not upfront with what her political leanings were. She was trying to be apolitical because she wanted to have a, like, she wanted monetary success. So it was, it was a weird position to be in. Um, yeah, and, that and it's also it's also like very funny for me because like when she came out and she was like, you know, someone else that I love. Oh my god, like Alexi, like you need to like not let me like get into like my thing because like it also reminded me of like you know there's so much misogyny also when it comes specifically to like uh, women artists who people decide already like what they're doing. Like for instance, like I. I've, yeah, I don't know, like some people have called them like my problematic faves, but I don't believe in that as you know. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, yeah. But you know, like people were like, oh, how dare you like uh, Taylor? And also like people kept making the same like comments about like, do you know, have we ever talked about how obsessed I am with Jennifer Lawrence, Alexi? No, we have not. I did not know that. <laughs> I'm like, you know, like if you saw like my uh, my movie, like, you know, like my, my physical movies like thing, uh, I have like a Jennifer Lawrence, like, section it's not even like a genre thing it's like a Jennifer Lawrence thing anyway 
I remember the same thing happened to her. Like people just like look at someone and they decide that what this person is going to represent for them. And people were also saying like, you know, like, oh, she's like, why is she, isn't she like making movies? She's just like being like rich. She's like doing nothing. And did you know, Alexi, for instance, that uh, after I think it was Mother, which was like her last like big film, um, Jennifer Lawrence went and worked for a whole year in trying to get people in Kentucky to vote and to like end like voter, uh, what's, the, what's the word, uh, disenfranchisement. Did you know that, Alexi? No, I didn't. And honestly, I don't know much about the scandal surrounding Jennifer Lawrence in the first place but um well from what i like from what i don't know i guess i would say something along the lines of i mean i think sometimes artists have platforms and even if their actions like even if they didn't mean their actions to have a certain meaning or even if they don't mean to represent something just by the nature of having huge platforms they have to answer and kind of hopefully disentangle themselves from problematic like causes. You know, it's so funny to me that, uh, especially with when I see like uh, white people, which neither of us are, uh, luckily, when I see white people, like they hold like Taylor Swift and Jennifer Lawrence to higher standards than they do their grandpa and their racist uncle. I mean, they're willing to <laughs> sit through Thanksgiving dinner with like super racist uh, family members, but how dare Taylor Swift not do anything about the election, right? But I mean, what are we going to do about it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody should have the difficult conversations, both those family members at Thanksgiving and also your, like, also the pop stars and celebrities that that the society idolizes. Like, everybody should have those conversations to kind of determine, I don't know, their privileges and how they may have hurt or not hurt others. <laughs> Yeah, they can be a lot of fun also. So let's go into our review section. And Alexi, do you want to introduce Heroes since this is a local production for you? Yeah, so I was really excited for us to watch Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Um, it was put up by the Wilma, which is a local theater here in Philadelphia. From what I understand, they basically went to the Poconos and they quarantined and they had like kind of a COVID safe filmed production of it. And it was like in the backyard of a cabin in the Poconos, um, which aligns with the set perfectly. And it's the play has been framed as this window into the minds of the far right. If you want to know how white far right individuals in the U.S. think, this piece has been framed as a way to gain some insight into how like religion has been leveraged to fuel conservative views to then further fuel a far-right platform, and I thought that that would be really, like, relevant and interesting to watch. So you hadn't seen the New York production of it, right? Had you read the play before no. or anything? I yeah. hadn't read the play or anything. I just knew that won the Pulitzer, right? It was a finalist. No, it's a finalist. It was finalist. Yeah. Sorry. The musical one. Exactly. Yeah. So have you seen A Strange Loop? No, I want to. I've listened to that album so many times. I want to see it so badly. Yeah, that, this year for the Pulitzer was like incredible. But anyway, we're not going to stray from uh, Will Arbery's work. It's really strange when you get to see a production that was like so recent, and then you get to see a different theater company do it. 
And my surprise, which shouldn't have been a surprise, was how, uh, I mean, how similar it was to the New York production, other than obviously the whole, you know, like COVID restrictions and like having to do things on film and all of that. So I was, uh, I'm definitely not gonna say I was disappointed because that's not the right word, but I was like, uh, every time that I see uh, a production of something done somewhere else, I kind of hope that people are gonna do something wildly different from the original production. And I guess that obviously like you can't really do, I mean, you can, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit later uh, when, when we're talking about the show. But I was like, okay, this is like a, it was like a really good, uh, respectable like adaptation of the play. Uh, but I was, I don't know, maybe I think I wanted like a little bit like something different, if that makes sense. Cause I had seen the other production so recently and which is why I would like to hear you talk a little bit more about it since like maybe do you know have you seen the actress in this production uh, in other things for instance because I, I don't think I have. So because I've been abroad for a year because of grad school I haven't been able to see a lot of local Philadelphia theater recently uh, before COVID hit so that's like an unfortunate angle but I think my first impressions of the show was that the way they filmed it gave it kind of a cinematic feel. Like it was really curated and packaged to almost feel like a movie with close-ups and the different angles that I necessarily wouldn't have gotten in a live stage production. So I felt that could be seen as something completely different, you know, just the way that they filmed it. Because um, like some theatrical productions are filmed like to do like one angle of the whole stage and you just see the, everything play out on stage. Whereas this one had close-ups and different um, views and it made it feel more like a movie. Yeah, absolutely. Like I loved how they uh, didn't do that thing that you're mentioning. Like it felt, I mean, we don't want to like stray into like, is this a film or a play kind of thing, obviously, because that's like pointless. <laughs> But I, I, I did like that a lot. And I'm glad that you mentioned it because I noticed how, because uh, for the camera was, and where the camera was for this, like some lines maybe that uh, Will wrote struck me as even more powerful than the first time I saw the play. And I mean, I, I, I've talked before about my experience when I saw this play for the first time. And it was in uh, late last year. And just before I went to see Heroes, I had gone to an immersive show in the dark where they like put a blindfold on you. And then like they walk you through like a horror thing, right? Oh my God. And that sounds so scary. Yeah. But, 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 and I mean, and I'm sorry, Will, if you listen to this, like it's not the play, it's this like traumatic experience that happened before this. So at some point during that show, which was completely in the dark, they throw like stink bombs at you. So I had, yeah, I had the smell, you know, cause like it was literally like on me. I had the smell of like rotten egg in my nostrils, Alexi, through my entire time sitting through Heroes of the Fourth Turning, which made me incredibly uncomfortable. And it was so funny cause like when the play started, like I could, you know, when I started watching on my TV, I could feel that smell. I was like, oh my God, like I'm gonna, am I no. gonna yeah. <laughs> Am I always gonna like relate like horror and like stench to this uh, play? Um, but uh, you know, I eventually got over it. 
and I sprayed my room with like a lot of like you know like sprays and like uh, incense and candles and stuff and it I got over it but I was like very glad that I got to see the play maybe for the first time I would say and not have like a constantly you know like present fart smell in my <laughs> in my brain and in my mind so I, I have to say that I did enjoy this production much more and obviously not it's not anyone's fault other than that show who like bumped me with stuff but uh, I when I realized that it was not gonna really like stray from what I had seen before I became really fascinated because like I felt that it was almost like um giving these characters like if they were like you know like real human beings like in the world it would be like giving these characters their own like, reality show and it's like, it felt like very like the real world to me where like they put people like in the Poconos and these people happen to be very uh, conservative, uh, very Republican people. And then we get to see them like talk their stuff for a few, for a couple hours. No, that's true. I think like the way that this, I mean, I agree. It could read like a reality TV show, just the way that it's like a group of people like isolators from the world and you just throw them together and see what drama like mixes up. I mean, the show itself also has like, there's like people who have slept together before and then there's someone who's pining after another person. And there's some, there's always like the character who tries to like mediate everything. Um, and I felt like you had all of that. And you even had kind of like a guest star, the president of the university come in and like throw up more drama and then leave. So I agree. It was very reality TV show-esque. But then, like, it would be reality TV show drama and then long monologues about, like, Catholicism or long monologues about, like, far-right ideology. And it was almost unsettling because I think you can... Because I think you see a group of young people interact with their friends in a way that you would interact with your friends or in a way that you see people react on a reality TV show. And then suddenly there's a very like sharp pivot to like, wait, they think differently than I do. Even if they act and talk and are young and are like, could seem like they fit in my social circle. Suddenly they're like far right conservatives who listen to people like Steve Bannon. So that was like huge. I, it was jarring, honestly, for me. Okay, so I recently learned Alexi, and I was like very shocked by this, and I'm still like recovering that you're a huge Real Housewives fan. So, if you had the time, and not to put you on a spotlight or anything, like if you had the time to think about this or not, like you can think about this right now, which Housewives would you like, you know, like compare? Like which ones are like the equivalent of the characters in the in the play for you? Okay. Okay. So if this cast were to be okay, so if this cast were to be members of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills cast, I feel like this is like a really tough challenge, but I'm really gonna try hard to rise to the challenge. Okay. So the first one I want to do, Campbell O'Hare. She plays Emily, and I think Emily she doesn't cause drama. She is out here trying to mediate. She's out here trying to speak for the left in this show. And she doesn't ask for any of the drama that comes her way. She's just trying to chill. And I feel like I get a strong Kyle Richards vibe from her. Because Kyle in the show, 
kind of plays a similar role. She's like key part of the friend group, key part of the cast, but she is not here trying to stir up drama. She just gets drama thrown her way and makes the best of it. And that's exactly what Emily does. Now, Teresa, who is played by Sarah Glyco, huge stir of drama, huge stir of drama. And either by past relationships in the show with um, Justin, who's played by Jared McLennan, McLennigan, sorry, that is a piece of drama she stirs up. And also by just being like far right, like Steve Bannon, like pro individual, like she just like stirs up a lot of the fights and pushes the drama and plot throughout the play. So now I have to think of in the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, who is the person that stirs drama and pushes plot lines throughout an entire season? Literally, Lisa Vanderpump. Lisa Vanderpump is someone who is always ready to spill tea and always willing to create drama just for the sake of it. I think she created drama over an adopted dog one season. And by the end of the season, it was completely kind of like torn apart. But she was like, I just did it to do it. And I That's guess that person. Sorry, to interrupt you. I don't know anything about Real Housewives, by the way. So like, I'm like very, I'm like enlightened me, Alexi. This is the same person from Vanderpump Rules, right? Is that what it's called? Yes. This is okay. the same person who got her own spinoff series over the restaurants that she owns in LA. She's a restaurant. <laughs> yes, Vanderpump Rules. So I'm going to say Teresa is a strong Lisa Vanderpump vibe. Um, Justin, who's played by Jarek McLennigan, I'm really trying to figure out what role he would be in the cast. I think he is also, okay. So he is also part of the drama. He is a major stir of drama and either kind of like pushing Kevin to like be more conservative in the show and also trying to like both be, basically Justin is trying to play both fields by trying to be friends with Emily in the show, but also trying to be friends with Teresa, but they're polar opposites, right? Emily is trying to mediate and not be super far right. And Teresa's like, you should all pray to Steve Bannon. So because he's trying to play both sides, but he, like by creating even more drama, I'm gonna give him the role of like Teddy Mellencamp because Teddy in, la in one of the seasons was caught trying to play both sides. Teddy was literally caught trying to pretend like she didn't know about the adopted dog scandal and trying to pretend to be a victim of the adopted dog scandal. It was honestly way too much and it all was kind of like pre-orchestrated, but it was obvious that she was playing both sides. So that was actually a perfect fit. I'm actually, I'm actually kind of proud for this, for any listeners that watch this season. Would you also say, cause like, again, like, I don't know anything about this, but I know how reality uh, shows work. Would you say that he could also be a producer then who like in between shots goes and like serves up some drama, like, oh, this bitch just said this about you. And like, oh, this dude just said this about you. And like, let's like get some like, drama like steering like this person well, wants you to of, think this yeah i feel like that is a, i could do that and first off too that's exactly kind of how heroes of the fourth turning kind of works because you kind of see some scenes where it's almost as, a, as if quote unquote the producers put justin jane who plays kevin and sarah glyco who plays Teresa, out on the patio alone and we know that kevin is in desperate search of a girlfriend 
and like has a crush on Teresa and putting them alone while he's drunk creates like this huge like fight scene where he's like please like date me and then Teresa's like why would why would I date you and it, I mean it reads like reality tv so the playwright is the producer and honestly mastermind honestly mastermind so that's kind of what I'm getting to be honest it will be kind of hard for me to give Justin Jane who's Kevin um a like Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, like perfect analogy. Because I feel really, I feel like he's in a really tough space and he's dealing with a lot of personal problems. And that is kind of like his whole role as a character is like dealing with his inner conflicts. To be honest, I do think that I actually have a perfect character, Kim Richards, who in the show deals with a lot of personal problems. And you kind of see like this personal growth that she tries to like combat a lot of her own personal challenges that is kind of her main role in the show so i think kevin is kim richards this is this turned out really good okay i wonder then like who would the uh, you know i call it like the lost sound like, you know the lost like godzilla you remember, did you ever become like a lost person no no <laughs> i tried the first season and anyway that's another story but and uh as you probably know like in lost jj abram show there was this like mysterious like monster thing or whatever like in the, on the island and like he would like roar every now and then. So do we have like an you know an equivalent to any reality show? Like I mean this this is like our show, our rules. So you can like bring in people and characters from different reality shows if you want. Who would like the sound be? Okay, so it's like interesting that you bring up the like roar sound because I wanted to ask you. I watched that. Per- I watched the show. And, like, do you remember, like, in the show, there'd be these random moments where there'd be, like, a screeching sound, and everybody would be like, what is that? What is that? And then they, like, never explain it. That's, like, the mystery monster. That's literally the mystery monster. Everyone's like, ah, like, why is there this huge sound? And it just kind of makes everyone nervous. And then people keep fighting. Um, So, yeah, I don't even think we need to bring in the mystery monster. He wrote it in. I'm telling you, the playwright is the producer. He knew what he had to do. Yes, he is. And I love that monster sound. It's like, it, I love that. It's like my favorite thing, I think, in the, in the entire play. Yeah. Um, something that I also thought a lot about when it came to the show, and this is like kind of pivoting away from like reality TV, et cetera, is that like, I feel like they frame this show as like, oh, this is how the far right thinks. And you can tell me if you feel similarly, but I felt like I saw some of like my Guatemalan upbringing in that show because when some of those characters spoke i feel like i heard some of my conservative extended family members who are also deeply catholic speak to me and it almost made me think about how like those ideologies aren't just white people per se but it is like i mean i think it's rooted in religion so i don't know if you felt similarly well i would i would i mean i'm not gonna say i'm gonna challenge that uh but i I don't know the right word to use here but like Yes, I completely agree with you. Like, I mean, like I speak to my uh, parents uh, often, not as often, uh, and who are in Honduras, and they're very liberal and they're very like progressive. But they will tell me how their friends are saying all this nonsense. And you're right in that this is like a very, uh, you know, like similar point of view to what the characters in the play says. But the reason for that. I would not say it's Catholicism itself, but it's 
American intervention in Central America. And remember, all of our countries, I mean, like I'm from Honduras, like, and your family is from Guatemala. All of our countries, Alexi, have, ha have endured decades and decades of American intervention where literally uh, ideology is exported and imposed, whether through dictatorships or military uh, coups or et cetera, constantly. So like, it's like really funny because like I, you know, my, my dad was telling me like just last week that some of his friends who are highly educated people, not white at all, were saying that Joe Biden was like a gangster who was trying to hurt this poor man in the White House who's only trying to do good. <laughs> and I'm like, what? That makes like no sense. I, I, you know, I don't think it has anything to do with religion and Catholicism. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a many things, but one of the things that I am is like, I'm also Catholic and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not like, you have never heard me say any of the things that the characters in this play say. So I think you, you, you bring us to like a very interesting point, which is that it's how we easily try to like find a label and like try to decide where people's racism and where people's like uh, misogyny or people's xenophobia, for instance, come from. I don't think it's Catholicism in a way, but I was, I was, you know, I was very, I really liked how the play, because like most plays I feel that I see are very, uh, I mean, Protestantism, I think, is more popular in America than Catholicism. So I was very appreciative for how Will brought his background into this to, you know, to involve Catholicism. It's like, I wonder, like, I wanted, especially when I was watching this production, I wanted to go there. I mean, I didn't want to go there. I, I don't really like the country. But I wanted to like ask this character, like, how do you feel then about the fact that Joe Biden, who's like the uh, elected president right now, is also a Catholic? Like, how yeah. are your ideas on Catholicism like related to his? How is he challenging your own Catholicism? So that's, that's yeah, that's where I went. No, so I agree. So I don't think that in being Catholic inherently makes you regressive or far right. And I think that's the whole point of the show, right? The whole point of the show is like talk, having a conversation about how a handful of people or a certain subset of a community have leveraged Catholicism as the vehicle to propagate far-right values. And then throughout the conversation, you have people pull up religious doctrine from the Bible and from the Catholic faith that support progressive values, you know? And I think that that's like a really important thing. So like the point I was making for sure is not to say being Catholic means that you're far right because I was raised Catholic. I'm obviously not far right. I'm very progressive, but I'm just saying it's more interesting that like it has been used as a vehicle to propagate far right values in so many different settings. And if that's a result of American imperialism in Latin America, that is a connection I could definitely understand as well. So I agree, though, that like we have a, we have a Catholic president-elect and the Catholicism that he supports and um, and he promotes is so different from the Catholicism that you see in Heroes of the Fourth Turning, um, which is interesting. So it just shows you that Catholics don't always necessarily vote along their faith and maybe faith isn't the only way to try to understand someone's values. Yeah, I completely like I don't think anyone's a monolith. And 
Thank you, Will Arbery, and thank you to the entire production team at uh, the Women Theater for making us think about this a little bit more. And now we're gonna go into our next show, Inside the Wild Heart, which is based on the literature of Clarice Spector, who's one of the finest writers in history. And I'm not even gonna say arguably, and arguably she's like fucking badass. So if you haven't read it, uh, you know, her work, sorry, like please go read it right now. So uh, uh, two years ago, and it's like strange how time flies, I saw the production of Inside the Wild Heart in New York, and it was an immersive experience where we went into a house and we got to travel uh, and journey through different rooms, follow different characters, and they were all drawing from uh, Clarissa Spector's literature and characters and uh, themes and the things that she loved writing about. So what happened here was the, this production conceived by Andresa Furletti and Deborah Ballardini and directed by Linda Wise does that in a digital platform. And basically we show up in a house like little Zelda 8-bit characters from like the original like Nintendo or whatever. And then we are given the liberty to like wander throughout the house and to access all the rooms. And by just interacting with characters or with scenes, we get to see videos and scenes from a production that was recorded. So I, I mean, this was your first time doing this show, Alexi, and I wanna hear way more about what you thought about it than what I did, because I thought it was great. I mean, it's a great way to bring an immersive experience and make it feel like tangible and feel like you're not stuck in your apartment or your house or whatever, where people are right now and get to see a different world. So I want to hear what you, uh, what your journey was like, Alexi. Oh, I loved it. I thought it was so cool to kind of just go through like a different experience that was so interactive. Um, everybody's trying to find a new interactive way to be with theater. And I thought that was the best way. I felt like I wanted to speak to everybody and kind of see what experiences they were having. I honestly got like stuck in one corner of the house where they were interviewing an author. They just had like a video recording of an author and she was talking about, she said like this really fun line where she's like, when I am not writing, I am dead. And when I'm writing, I'm alive. And I just like, I don't know, I just kind of sat and watched that interview for half an hour. So the show, I think like everybody goes through it, will have a different experience and take on it. And I really appreciate it. Also looked like it probably took a lot of work to set up. <laughs> that was Clarice with her, with her cigarette, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, that was like, I think that was like the last interview that she did before she died. She died very young. And that interview, by the way, is on YouTube. And it's like a ride in itself. Like, it's so funny that you were stuck there forever. Because like, when I saw the show, uh, you know, physically, whatever that means, I was so fascinated by it that I also remained in that room, like, just like, fascinated and just like enthralled by this by this woman so yeah basically you know like everything in the show comes from something that women wrote and created at some point so I'm very uh very glad that we I didn't spend as much time there this time around because like my internet connection was like hell thank you very much Optimum <laughs> for not letting me do enough things uh online and I you know I I just like went around the house and like looked at things mostly. But uh, 
did you follow any other characters? Like, were there any other rooms that like really uh, made you be like, I want to move here? Oh my God, there was this beautiful piano. There was this beautiful piano and it was just like so intricately decorated that I really loved. Um, there was a scene between lovers that went from the bathtub to the bed and it was just really passionate. And I really enjoyed that. Um, basically, it just felt like every time I went to a different room, there was a whole new experience. And it was kind of hard for me to establish like a narrative. And once I stopped trying to establish a narrative, I enjoyed it so much more. Is that how you feel about reality shows? Or do they, because like, again, like, I don't know that much about reality shows. Like, is that similar in any way? Or uh, do you have to find a narrative in order to like get into them? Oh, I need a narrative. I need like a plot line. I really do. I need, this is why the producer is so important. This is why the playwright is so important. I need someone to like package something that is filled with like a little bit of drama, some character growth and resolution. And it has to be really like perfectly planned along the season. So no, I need that. Um, yeah, so, but also, no, no, even competition reality TV shows have that character arc and growth and it's all intentional. So I've been watching this reality TV show called Sugar Rush. It's kind of like the American version of British Bake Off and it's like really intense. And I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of character growth there, so. Yeah, I have not, the only reality show that I ever watched is uh, the first season of The Real Life, because I mean I was young and I was like go Paris Hilton, and then like the only show that I like, not even religiously, but that I follow is like RuPaul's Drag Race. So please enlighten me, and I love when people like talk about reality shows. I don't know anything about them, so oh. if you can like draw me into this kind of world. Uh, I'm, I'm open. Yeah, I've literally watched so much. I watch one where they blow glass, like, and I've watched one where they make pots, like the Great Pottery Throwdown, another great British reality TV show. Like, there is a reality TV show for everything. So, just like, text me. I'll I'll give you a few links. They're all over YouTube, unless they get taken down. Now, when the Great Pottery Throwdown got taken down, I was honestly very sad. But, anyways, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think I'll just wait for you to find the one that you think fits me the most and I'll, 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 I'll check it out. Uh, and in the meantime, Inside the Wild Heart runs through December 20th and uh, tickets are available online and everything will be in the show notes. And now we're going to go into our interview for this episode. Alexi, do you want to tell our listeners who we talked to this time around? So today we're going to interview Robert O'Hara and Sullivan Jones. So Robert O'Hara recently directed Tennessee Williams' Streetcar Named Desire, which was released as an audio play on Audible, and Sullivan Jones played Mitch in this production. This production was turned into an audio play because it was originally supposed to be a live stage production at the Williamstown Theater Festival. What's really exciting is that both Sullivan Jones and Robert O'Hara have worked together previously um, when producing Slave Play. So O'Hara also directed Slave Play and Sullivan Jones played Philip. And now this show has gone on to become the most Tony nominated show in history. So um, please enjoy. Robert O'Hara and Sullivan Jones, welcome to Token Theater Friends. Uh, I'm very excited to have you both here. So for people who I guess like 
have lived under a rock for all of eternity. What is Streaker Name Desire? Like, describe it to me as if I had never heard of it before. Although I even was going to wear like a Blanche Dubois forever <laughs> t-shirt today. <laughs> Um, I'll let Sullivan take that question. Oh my God. Now, now I realize why I was invited to this, to answer the questions that Robert doesn't want to answer. All of them, exactly. Um, God, I mean, uh, where, where to start with that? Uh, um, I mean, Tennessee Williams, let's start there. Let's just start with the writer who I feel like exudes and drips with that kind of Southern syrupy, sensual, uh, dangerousness that that feels like it's of a different era because it is of a different era. Um, I don't know, Robert, you you, you jump in here, man. I, well, Zucar is an American classic play about uh, two sisters uh, having to negotiate uh, um, a husband and brother-in-law um, in New Orleans. Uh, it is rife with uh, a melodrama and uh, violence and uh, alcoholism. Uh, and it is both glorious and uh, terrifying at the same time. I love the description so much. So now we're going to go into like the not uh, softball questions anymore. And I was really, you know, I was listening to it and uh, on my headphones a lot. And it reminded me of when I was 15 years old, I, uh, I lived in Honduras where I was born and my grandma took me and my brothers to New Orleans. And like, I was like such a nerd that the first thing I put in my suitcase was my copy of Streetcar. And then I made my entire family spend a whole afternoon trying to find the Elysian Fields address from the play. <laughs> and, <laughs> And it didn't like exist, like obviously like we got there and it was like some like government building or something that was like horrible. But anyway, listening to the play uh, like that took me back then. And I was very grateful because like theater obviously is something that we don't get to carry around in our, you know, in, like on our heads. So can you talk a little bit about what the transition was like from, you know, like it's not happening on stage at Williamstown anymore into like reimagining it as a, is it like an almost different kind of world for, for you also? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know what Sullivan's experience was from preparing to go on to a production then to go into a sort of audio world, but I never um, was, uh, uh, I, didn't thought, I didn't think of that. Like, I thought, okay, so we're not doing streetcar. Okay, fine, let's move on to the next thing. It was the pandemic. You know, the last thing I was thinking about, like, well, how are we gonna, oh my God, I can't do this play. Um, and so when it was presented to me, I was like, um, why would I want to do that? Like, I'm planning to do a production. Why am I, why do I want to do audio? Um, and so after having uh, several conversations uh, with Audible and with Williamstown Data Festival, I thought, it, and, and also some of the actors, I thought it might be actually a great opportunity to explore the uh, play in preparation for a possible uh, production, because also myself being a writer, the language is glorious, and the the, the the writing itself is just completely and totally beautiful. So, uh, you know, 
that was one of the exciting things about going into Streetcar Audible. I had to let go of the idea and had let go of the idea uh, that we were going to do a production. So there was no attempt to sort of equate them or go, oh, how can I make this uh, audio production into what it was supposed to be on stage? Uh, but Sullivan, what was your experience? Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, I was like, oh, damn, we're not, we're not going to be able to go to Williamstown and do it at, at such a great, you know, place to, to put on theater. But then also there's a pandemic that's completely turning the world upside down. So who the hell cares? Um, and then to, to be able to have Mandy and Robert and the whole like Williamstown team come back and say, we're going to switch it up and try this different medium uh, through which to tell the story I thought was, was amazing. Um, and I, I've done like a fair amount of voiceover work in, in the past five, six years, mostly commercials and some animation and stuff like that. And I think what I, what I uh, missed doing this play was the, the, the pretty basic obvious answer, like being in the room with other human beings. Um, that was just really hard to, to simulate, you know, when you're at home. You have to listen, obviously, that's kind of the only thing you can do is, is, is listen, but you're just, you're missing so many sensory inputs when you're, like I was under a, you know, a bed sheet basically recording, recording the play. So it's pretty astonishing what Robert and Co did with it. I mean, it sounds like you feel like you're in the world. Absolutely, Robert. So your directorial work kind of seeks to make people uncomfortable in like self-reflective ways. I'm thinking maybe Slave Play, for example, or Raising the Sun even had a couple moments of self-reflection amongst like white audiences. And I wanted to know, were you able to bring that type of directorial angle to this audio production? Or is that something that maybe you weren't as able to strongly do? You know, I don't know if I'm seeking to make you uncomfortable. I just know I'm not seeking to make you comfortable. Um, okay. And so you should, and if the opposite of that is uncomfortable, then I guess so. But that's not the goal. The goal is just making sure that I'm not here to make you comfortable. Um, and I think that there's no way, I mean, this streetcar, I mean, uh, uh, it was very uh, uncomfortable at times um, because we had to deal with the facts. And the facts of it uh, is that there is an alcoholic, there are two alcoholics in the play, and one of them is raped uh, at the end of the play, and the other one is assaulted. Uh, and also, um, both of the men in the play uh, that are the leads, including Sullivan's character, plays in an assault on a woman uh, in, in the play. And uh, those are real things that really happen. And so uh, I didn't want to sort of um, romanticize that or gloss it over just because we were doing it uh, for the ear. Um, and so I think that most of the times when the play is done, there is a sort of softening. There is a sort of romanticizing the violence and, uh, and, and also uh, the alcoholism. And um, we deliberately want to fall into those spaces and, and make those spaces more uh, specific in a way. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, that shows in, in the recording. Absolutely. I feel like some of the most iconic lines of the play, like Stanley yelling Stella, is like right after domestic abuse. And yes. yet it's still something that we like highlight and prioritize as like an iconic moment in right. theater. We have prioritized the rapist, basically, and I kind yeah. of a, a rapist. And, you know, what uh, uh, um, 
what the play does, it, it leaves the hitting of Stella, the beating of Stella off stage, and it leaves the rape off stage too. So basically what we have is this sort of uh, a man who has just beat his wife that we didn't see, but he's repentant. And he's, you know, no shirt on, screaming in the middle of the rain, if you would take the movie, uh, for his wife. And so all we get is the um, repentant uh, husband who, who says he'll never do it again. We don't get the brutality of watching him do what he did. You know, can you imagine if we saw Brando beat and actually assault a, a person, how that would color uh, the history of that character and uh, maybe even uh, his own uh, um, uh, relationship to the play? Uh, so, yeah, I think that that was something that we, I definitely did not want to sort of play into. I wanted to actually center uh, 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 Blanche and center Stella and their experience. And, you know, they don't cut to black when you are hit or when you are assaulted. Mm -hmm. Nothing cuts out. You know, you're, you are actually still in that assault, right? Uh, and so that was important for us to investigate that, um, as I would do it on the stage also. And it's like so so perverse all because we did get to see Brando like decades later assault someone on screen, like on camera, and then like have people like defend him for doing it. It's like a, the artistic choice or whatever. So that's like uh, yeah, it's like very uh, I don't know, like a lot to think about. But I was, you know, I, I've always like really had a very soft spot for for bitch. And uh, I wanted to like kill you, Sullivan, uh, at the moment when you know it was like uh, when Mitch goes to see Blanche and then like he says almost to himself, but also like to the audience, I guess, like, I really wasn't planning on like seeing you again, right? And it's a moment that like twists your heart because it's so sad, but it's also like revealing Mitch not as this like good guy that, you know, that he's been uh, presented as so far, but also like, also like another like version of Stanley and another like man who just wants to use his uh, weak women. and. I don't know if I want to know specifically about that line because it was so haunting. It was so beautiful. And I almost like also wanted to throw my headphones at the wall. Uh, but <laughs> can you uh, talk, talk maybe a little bit about that, about that, about uh, giving like different emphasis then to a line like that, that on stage, you would have had to like, you know, like yell, for instance, and you get to whisper right. almost. Yeah. With the microphone. Yeah. It's interesting that you use the term use, Stanley, using people. I mean, I feel like central to the story is just a kind of a hunger from every character and an unabated, uncensored, deep-seated hunger. And we all, as human beings, have that, whether it's a sexual pang or actual appetite or you want your career to be something, whatever it is. And these men in this time, uh, the way that they kind of embraced that or dealt with it was to just sort of take what they wanted or use use people, like you said, to sate their, their needs. And so Mitch shows up. And one of the things that I liked kind of about the scene and working on it, uh, and as Robert said, what we got to do was sort of basically like table work. You know, we, we had a week of rehearsal and then we recorded it and that was it. But um, like you said, Mitch shows up and he's sort of like, I didn't want to see you, but now he's here. And you don't really know why he's here or what he wants. And Stella's kind of the motor of the scene. And Mitch is kind of quiet. So you're kind of like, what does this guy want? And eventually, it, it gets revealed in the end. He says, I come to get what I've been missing all summer. Um, but to answer the technical question, uh, I really liked being able to kind of play it, play the levels, the lower levels, because you're right in front of the microphone. You don't have to. You don't have to project and hit the back wall like you would in an 800 seat theater. Um, 
so that was really just using using the equipment that we had and and a lot and, and letting the intimacy uh do what it did by just whispering basically i, I don't even remember what i did on the line but i imagine i, I did something like that it was great it worked for me so congress on whatever it is that you did <laughs> you know one of the uh most uh, one of my favorite moments uh is uh, in the play, which I would never have imagined by just reading the play or even seeing the movie, is the moment uh, between Mitch and Blanche uh, when he comes in and they're talking about his mother, and 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 Mitch breaks down, uh, at, talking about his mother. And I, while I, while at the same time it's so moving, I also see or sense. Uh, uh, Blanche's manipulation going on when she goes, oh, you're going to be lonely, right? Like that's, but so, uh, at the same time, she's feeling for him, but also she's working in her head how this may work out to her benefit. I think it's actually quite beautiful. I love to find uh, what I call uh, the beauty in the horror sometimes and sort of, you know, finding those moments that are seemingly really sort of gorgeous to look at, but there's something just a little bit twisted in it. Um, and that was one of those moments that I think uh, Audra uh, and, and, and Sullivan caught, whether they were conscious of it or not, I think it is certainly uh, there. And like, I think that's like a really kind of interesting point as well, because when you think about the different moments that are a little more intimate on stage, I think you had mentioned, for example, the domestic abuse is like off stage, but you put the sexual assault on stage and you put it on like pretty up and center in this audio recording. And I wanted to know what were your intentions in that way? If for example, you didn't want to put the domestic abuse as on stage, but the sexual assault seems pivotal to the audio production, it seems, um, especially with some of the like audio sounds apart from sounds of assault, but also I think kind of like hollering and hooting and so like, what were, what was your angle and aim there? Well, uh, both of those assaults are on stage in terms of the ear. Um, one is more uh, specific because it is mm -hmm. between two people. And uh, the other one, uh, the, the violence, the domestic assault is uh, the whole group of people talking at the same time. So you, you may not be able to, to hear it, but I certainly, uh, if I stage it, expect to put it on the stage because I don't want us to not have that as a part of the context of the story, right? Uh, and, and sort of removing it off. In terms of uh, the sexual assault, that, those noises that you referred to are written into the script. Um, we normally don't hear them because most people don't do them, but he writes that Stella descends, and that, I mean, that Blanche descends into a sort of jungle-like feeling that because she, throughout the play, she's been calling Stanley an ape, a brute, a beast, he's primitive, you know, and she does this whole monologue about how, you know, he may even grunt and then kiss you or whatever. So she descends, and it's a part of her protection also, that she turns him into a beast and her being devoured in this sort of jungle feeling. So we played into that. That's also one of the parts that we continue to massage uh, in terms of um, uh, uh, making sure that we got that sort of... Uh, um, the technical quality of it right, because we didn't want it to feel gratuitous, right? Uh, and we didn't, but we also did not want it to feel insignificant because it is basically the turning point uh, of, of, of the play and that they're going to now commit her uh, for the rest of her life after this scene. So my um, point in doing that scene was to see how can we actually uh, honor 
the stage directions called for by uh, Williams, which is normally not there, but also how can we uh, go descend into Blanche's brain and her own psyche as it's happening. Uh, and so that's where uh, uh, we came from. And I'm still sort of considering, you know, normally we would get a, a couple of weeks of previews, right? In order for mm -hmm. me to sit with it in front of an audience and see if I can tweak it or whatever. So here we, we were up against a deadline. And once again, we had seven days of rehearsal and two days of recording. So uh, there were certain things that I would still massage in that scene because I still think that there are places to go in that scene, but that's where it landed in terms of the deadline for Audible. Um, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And I think it'll be an interesting process to kind of see how you massage that scene over an audio form, but probably you'll have to bring in intimacy coordinators and be a lot more intentional when you do a live production. Have you given much thought to how that might look? Yeah, well, we had an intimacy director, even on the audio. And we had Perfect. a fight director, even on the audible. And yes, it would have to be much more intentional uh, because it would be physical bodies. Also, I think that seeing it uh, will uh, change the dynamic of how long it needs to last, you know, uh, and how long it can live in the imagination, right? Uh, and also what we're also seeing around her is we may also see uh, her mind creating a different space for her physically. So the set itself can change, right? Uh, and projections and, and, and also Tennessee Williams does call for projections in his script. There's all this stuff in there. I mean, Tennessee Williams was out of control, of course, but there's a lot of stuff that we just skip over when we read this play that I was kind of exciting to sort of play into uh, in, in the audio. Can we take just a moment to just like talk about Audra? Because I was like, you know, during a pandemic, like I feel like we get like almost no pleasure from anything. And I was like, holy shit, Audra McDonald. Uh, you know, when, when the first line she uttered, was like, it took me to when I saw her uh, play Billie Holiday, where it was like, I was like, I can see her and I know it's her, but like her voice is suddenly someone completely new. And I don't know if you can talk about what it was like to work with her and like, did she have that effect on you where she opens her mouth and like your jaw just like falls to the floor and you're like, holy crap. <laughs> it, it was honest, so when we, we did like a reading of the play, I think very early. Um, and it was one of those readings where you saw, you heard and saw, cause it was through Zoom, what Audra was doing and you're like, this is ready-made. She could go, she could record today, tonight. And everybody else was kind of muddling through, me, myself included, you know, what's going on? Who are these people? And Audra was just like, she landed the plane in an ice storm, just like, boom, here we are. <laughs> and um, to see that is extraordinary. Like, I don't know what you, you call it hard work, call it a gift, call it all those things. But, but it, it was pretty, like what she did in the recording, she dialed it up and, and down a little bit, but it was pretty much like that rich from day one. Yeah. To, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, I think that everyone on the Zoom was just like, wait a second, were we supposed to like, because I think there was some lines that she knew. There was, there was something going on that was otherworldly. And we were like, uh, I think we was just reading this. <laughs> but all of a sudden we're sitting here with Blanche on, uh, in front of, and we're just like, Everybody on the uh, 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 that got into the scene with her was like, oh, "Okay, uh, so we so we're doing that today, okay." Uh, and this was just you know a, a reading, and I think it was kind of even like a couple of months even before 
we even did a rehearsal of it. And this was just a cold reading. Uh, and her, and she's so modest because she was like, well, you know, I'm going to try something. I'm going to, I don't know. I hope we're not recording this. And, and what Emma's like, oh, no, it's just like, and she, and I remember she wrote me that morning. She's like, are we supposed to be dressed up or anything? Cause I don't, I don't know. What are people wearing? And I'm like, I just think that we're going to be reading it. And she came full tilt boogie ready. And I was like, okay, well, that's why she got six Tonys. You know, so that's why. Exactly. I'm sure if someone links a Zoom, she's gonna win like an Emmy for it, all sort of stuff like that. Um, <laughs> can, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about, you know, like working uh, together again? Like, do, do you have not like a secret language or anything, but you know, like there obviously must be like some like rapport and like something that you didn't get to have with the uh, other uh, cast members. Like what's that, uh, what was that reunion like for the two of you? I'll start. I. I think this has completely been in my own, my own head. I've never told Robert this, but I grew up playing sports with like some, you know, I grew up playing sports. My dad was a very intense guy. My coaches were very intense and sports culture is very much like, you did it wrong, do it again. And you kind of have to go like, okay, cool. I'll do it again. So there's no, there's no, you don't take things personally. You just try and get it right. And what I liked, what I love about working with Robert is He's very succinct and very clear about what he wants. And I appreciate that he's always, if he doesn't like it, he will tell you and he'll tell you specifically what it is. But then once he sets those boundaries, he lets you creatively explore. So he's, it's not an overbearing kind of thing. And it's not one of those directors that you work with where you go, what fucking world are we in? Who, what play is this? What year is this? Why hasn't he told that person that 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 they don't know the they don't know they haven't said the lines in two weeks? He hasn't said shit to that person. You know, he's steering the ship, but he's also creatively entrusting you with your your story and and to carry your weight. And and this is the biggest thing for me, truly, genuinely, a man of such deep integrity. I mean, to the 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 experiences that we had going from off Broadway to Broadway, producers press, expectations, casting, blah, blah, blah. But to have Robert at the center of that storm, at the fulcrum of it, and to, to, to kind of bring us along and tell us what was happening, what people were saying, what he wanted to do. And every time he said he wanted to do something, it fucking happened, you know? And it was, and, and he, uh, he, he's just a deeply, the word for me is just integrity. He has such, such deep integrity in that. That's what I respect about him. Aside from the creative stuff, which obviously he's br he's brilliant at what he does, but uh, he's a good man. I thought you know from the very first uh, when we started thinking about uh, 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 Streetcar, uh, I knew that uh, uh, I wanted to see uh, what Sullivan would do. I, I deliberately wanted to have it be that there was something different about um, Audra. And and uh, and Carla, and that there was something special about them, and so I wanted to have the men not overwhelm the scene by who they were, but by but to live inside the scene uh, with their acting, you know, which is a different sort of way into Streetcar. So with with Sullivan, it was always that you know there is a sort of uh, um, gentleman caller uh, quality. Uh, to him that uh, always sort of like, it's wonderful to sort of hide a pocket knife uh, mm -hmm. as he walks in the door, 
You know what I mean? Uh, and I and I and I sense that in him that there is he has the ability to morph into what we hope uh, and believe his form and shape should be should present, and then it is uh, you know it, it, it is able to sort of like uh, deconstruct all of that, right? Uh, and so that was what's exciting to me. Uh, and so when I saw him, uh, and I think you auditioned with Carla, didn't you? No, just just solo. Oh, so you you didn't have an actress there? There was a a, a reader. A woman oh, was, reader. oh, I yeah. thought that you auditioned with Carla. Yeah, I, I so it was so instant. I was like all of what I had hoped and been dreaming about was there, and and still not knowing what he would bring to it, but knowing that whatever he brought to it would be uh, tremendous. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I saw your name, like, I instantly assumed, like, obviously he's going to be, like, Stanley. So heads off to both of you for, you know, so I mean, like, no, like, we we're, we can do way more than, than what you think I we're going to be doing. <laughs> and it's tricky, you know, the casting of the show is tricky. Once, especially in this play, once you step out of sort of, like, let's cast four white people, uh, and the lead of this play, then you're like, well, wait a second. If I have Audra, who's a black woman playing Blanche, then do am I telling the story of a black Stanley who is married to a white Stella who is beating, who's going to rape his black uh, sister-in-law? Is that the story that I want to tell, right? And then is uh, then and if Mitch is white, then are we putting a white savior? into a situation, you know? So these are all, so I'm not someone that goes, oh, well, let's just cast whoever and that's the best person or whatever. I'm like, no, part of what you look like and who you are is a part of what you bring to the stage. I don't believe in this sort of colorblind uh, casting. I don't just automatically go blind when I look at the stage, you know? So I wanna know what you can bring, how you, how you suddenly being uh, 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 white and Mitch being black, how that can enhance, and, and Audra being black and, 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 and Carla being white, how that actually can enhance it and not how we can just ignore it, you know? Uh, because uh, there, when the playwright was writing, he never imagined that this was going. So we have to imagine it for him, actually, mm -hmm. and not just assume that, oh, because uh, it's a great play, all this will work. Because I don't want the audience thinking of a certain thing when they should be thinking of this certain thing. I want you to concentrate on this moment and not worrying about, well, wait a second, why is this happening? Or is, are you actually saying so-and-so? So it was very deliberate. Uh, my my uh, casting, but uh, it was also based on how can I get the most opportunity out of it and not sort of how can I sort of like hide the fact that uh, we've sort of done a multicultural casting. And of course the play calls for it. I mean, Tennessee Williams says that New Orleans is a place where the races co-mingle freely, right? And yet we see a bunch of white folks every time we see this play. And then they have a sort of Negro woman and a Mexican man or Mexican woman or what have you. And I'm like, well, why is it that we're so afraid to sort of make, it is New Orleans, you know? And so why don't we actually uh, dive into what that really meant uh, and how that actually really felt at the time, yeah. Mm, yeah, I, I don't even want to tell you how many nightmares, like the, uh, just like Flores para los Muertos line gave me even as a teenager. And I was like, I'm too old to be scared of this, like women who sell like flowers. But uh, yeah, I, yeah. Sometimes I still escape through that scene in the movie. So I'm like, I, I can't deal with this right now.
Thank you both uh, for this. And do you want to tell, I'm sorry, I have to do the, the plug part also. Uh, so do you want to tell our viewers and our listeners where they can find Streetcar? Uh, do you have any other projects that are like streamed or like that are going to be out there for people to find? This is your moment to tell them all about it. Well, you can find Streetcar on Audible. Uh, and you can also go to the W uh, the Williamstown uh, Theater Festival website, and they will link you to uh, the Audible as well. Uh, and you can uh, download it and listen to it. Um, and for me, I have I, I I'm fortunate that I have a cool a couple things cool things coming up that uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say yet. But um, one one will be a TV show, and one will be a feature film. So keep your keep your eyes peeled. I want the text immediately. <laughs> I got you. I got Immediate, you. Like right, put it in text right now. Okay. okay yeah. We stay here, but go ahead. Yeah. So thank you so much, you two. This is great. This has been great. You know. Uh, yeah. Thank you both. This has been a pleasure. Yeah. And uh, break all the legs if the Tonys ever happen. <laughs> like you better win all of them. Also, so good luck. Yeah. Good luck on the Tony nominations. This was such a great opportunity. <laughs> Alexi, what is your absolute favorite line in Streetcar? Do you even have one for that matter? I'm obsessed with that play. Oh, okay. So I first read this play in high school um, and I saw the film in high school. Please, I know that Blanche has a couple of lines that really get me. So please give me a moment to think. A couple? I mean, girl, bye. I'm like hanging out. No, I know. I think Blanche is literally... I mean, I think Blanche in some ways is a gay icon, right? Like, in some ways, it's very queer to be so performative about, like, wealth and luxury. And Blanche is so, like, exudes a desire to be associated with luxury. Um, and I think, for me, the line I related to the most in this performativity was when she talked about putting, like, the lantern over the light bulb. She's like, I never like to be in a room with a naked light bulb, God forbid. And I just felt like that is exactly the queer performativity and the queerness that we all do. Oh, heavens no, like I must make the room prettier um, and exude luxury and wealth to like kind of like allude to like, I think a richer version of the apartment than she actually is in. So I think I relate so, to that the most. It's so interesting because like I, I was gonna say like you don't know this. I said we haven't talked about this before, but like uh, you're talking about luxury and you're talking about wealth and you're talking about like changing things. And that moment is my. I say this line at least once a day, Alexi, at some point, even to myself. I'm probably never said it to you, but I will literally every day say, "I want magic, yes, magic." And that's what she says. And she wants magic. So I want. I mean. Entered my Kylie connection here. Like, there's a song called Magic that Kylie Minogue goes into it right now. But also, yes, like, I want magic. Like, I want magic. I don't want wealth. I don't want any of that. But I guess we're kind of like in the same scene, but in different, with different like worldviews. So, I mean, we all deserve magic. We all deserve literally just a little magic, especially in these times. <laughs> yeah. And naked light bulbs are offensive. So, go Blanche. No, she's really just giving us some home decor tips. I think we all need to like integrate into our living spaces. So take what you can from Blanche. <laughs> she's given you some, I don't know, some home decor realness. Alexi, would you like to do our NPR become a subscriber drive today? 
Yes, absolutely. I think everybody, if you're able to, please like join on Patreon, just a dollar a month. For me, it felt like a very easy decision um, because I've always been looking for kind of like a community of like theater lovers that prioritize like BIPOC perspectives and BIPOC work, you know? We're trying to create a platform here that uplifts the work of BIPOC theater makers in a way that establishes them as the new norm. So if you're able to do so, please um, support. And it really helps and goes towards making great episodes like this one. For example, I was compensated for working on this and so are others uh, behind the scenes to make this episode possible for our listeners. Thank you, Alexi. And absolutely, if you are a BIPOC theater lover who wants to host an episode at some point, shoot us an email at tips at tokentheaterfriends.com or you can reach out to me at Jose Solis at tokentheaterfriends.com and you will be paid if you co-host an episode on Token Theater Friends. So reach out. I mean, you have nothing to lose, right? And you're going to get like, to see some shows and I hope it's fun. I don't know. I don't know, Alexi, you tell me. This was so fun. <laughs> I got okay, to watch cool. a bunch of theater for free and talk about it for hours. And talk to Robert O'Hara and Solomon Jones. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you, Alexi, for joining me today. I hope this will be the first of many times. And for now, I'm uh, Jose Solis. And I'm Alexi Chacon. And we're talking theater friends. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Leslie Udom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.